Welcome to Weekly Wisdom from Jubilee Circle. We teach the common wisdom of love and unity that is found in all mainstream religions, metaphysical teachings, mysticism, and inspired secular and religious writers and teachers throughout the ages. Our goal is to help you connect with your higher divine self and transform from the inside out so you can become a force for love and transformation in the world. Each week, we bring you wisdom from our founding spiritual director, Reverend Candace Shalou, and other guest speakers. We hope you enjoy this week's words of wisdom. Because we're human beings, at some time or another, we've experienced an identity crisis. I mean, that's what midlife crises are all about, right? You suddenly realize you have been living, you have not been living the life you intended. This is not my beautiful house. This is not my beautiful wife. I mean, that's what that song is about. So you buy a sports car. You divorce your spouse, you quit your job, suddenly you question everything you've believed or done, thinking you missed out on something important. And our ego just loves an identity crisis, after identity crisis, because it keeps us on the treadmill. Oh, seek but do not find. That divorcee with the nice car and no job is going to find out that their new identity may not be all they dreamed about either. <laughs> And then they're off in search of a new one. But we all have this idea of who we're supposed to be. But where does that come from? It's given to us somewhere from outside of ourselves. The media, the, the culture, it defines success. It defines what our bodies should look like. What kind of house or career or spouse we ought to have. If we're not measuring up, we've chosen wrongly. We need a new identity. What if, though, we got it all wrong? What if our identities here in this world are just like the costumes we're trying on? What if it's not really who we are? What if we're not made of the shifting, changing image of the ego and instead are created in that image of love which never changes because it's the only thing that's real? What if we could reclaim our changeless identity and practice the resurrection of who we truly are? And what if I told you I can help you with that today? Well, I bet that would make you say, Oh, yeah. Here are these wise and holy words. From A Course in Miracles. No one can survive independently as long as they are willing to see themselves through the eyes of others. This will always put them in a position where they must see themselves in different lights. You have no justification whatever for perpetuating any image of yourself at all. You are not an image. Whatever is true of you is wholly benign. It is essential that you know this about yourself, but you cannot know it while you choose to interpret yourself as vulnerable enough to be hurt. It is your duty to establish beyond doubt that you are totally unwilling to side with or identify with anyone's misperceptions of you, including your own. From author and teacher Richard Rohr, our false self, which we might also call our small self, is our launching pad. Our body image, our job, our education, our clothes, our money, our car, our sexual identity, our success, and so on. These are the trappings of ego that we all use to get through an ordinary day. They're a nice enough platform to stand on, but they are largely a projection of our own self-image and our attachment to it. None of them will last. When we are able to move beyond our false self at the right time and in the right way, it will feel precisely as if we have lost nothing. In fact, it will feel like freedom and liberation. When we are connected to the whole, we no longer need to protect or defend the mere part. We are now connected to something inexhaustible. To not let go of our false self at the right time and in the right way is precisely what it means to be stuck, trapped, 
and addicted to ourselves. If all we have at the end of our life is our false self, there will not be much to, ex- to eternalize. It is essentially transitory. These costumes are all accidents largely created by the mental ego. Our false self is what changes, passes, and dies when we die. Only our true self lives forever. From author and teacher Henri Nouwen, you are not what you do, although you do a lot. You are not what you have collected in terms of friendships and connections, although you may have many. You are not the popularity that you received. You are not the success of your work. You are not what people say about you, whether they speak well or whether they speak poorly about you. All these things that keep you quite busy, quite occupied, and often quite preoccupied are not telling you the truth about who you are. I am here to remind you in the name of God that you are the beloved children of God and that God says to you, I have called you from all eternity and you are engraved from all eternity in the palms of my hands. You are mine. You belong to me and I love you with an everlasting love. Buddhist teacher Tara Brock tells the story of an Austrian woman who was named Clara. She was impregnated by her uncle and she later married this man after his wife died. They had four children, but three of them died soon after birth. The fourth one was very sickly and she obsessively nursed him for two years. She was also her son, not surprisingly, grew up exceedingly fearful. He's afraid of everything. He's afraid of microbes, of germs, of dirt. He feels the very blood in his veins is dangerous and fears it's going to bring about defects and feeble-mindedness because of his mother and the incest. He's afraid of gossip about his incestuous family. He never has children. He's afraid of tainted blood. He's terrified of cancer, which took his mother's life. He's afraid of moonlight and horses, of snow, water, the dark, of judges, of Americans, of old men, of poets. So the question is, how can someone live with so much fear? Well, here's how he did it. He seized on one all-encompassing explanation for the existence of sin and disease and for his failures. It was not a weakness in his parents, in his blood, or in his mind. He was faultless. He could not change his china blue eyes, but he could hang the world they saw. He would identify the secret source of every evil and root it out. He would free Europe of pollution and defilement. Only health and purity would remain. Are such grim and comic facts significant or merely interesting? Here's another. The doctor who could not cure Clara Hitler's cancer was Jewish. It's an extreme example of what happens when we so fully believe in the ego, that we will accept not just the image we believe the world gives us, a fearful image of being weak or powerless or sinful and polluted because of our parents or where we came from, but this is also what it looks like when we accept our own egoic images of ourselves, believing that we are the only pure thing. And we feel driven to exterminate that which we see as the cause 
of all the evil in the world. Which in Hitler's case was other people, of course, who he perceived as unworthy, evil, and in need of a good old purging. Hitler's life is an extreme demonstration of what it's like to live solely by the dictates of ego, which, as A Course in Miracles tells us, is suspicious at best and vicious at worst. Hopefully none of us will follow the ego's prompting all the way down Hitler's road, but his example calls us to truly examine the life that we are living and how we tend to put on the perceptions of others and live into their idea of us and then make it our identity. Think about where your identity comes from in the first place. I mean, we all grow up with parents, grandparents, maybe siblings. They all have an idea about us that they project onto us. They have expectations They're gonna grow, that we're going to grow up and be something that they want us to be. Perhaps they want us to live the life that they wanted to live before they got pregnant with you. <laughs> you go and live their dream. We form our ego in the lights that they portray us in. Just as an example, I was the baby of my family. I'm the, I'm the last of five children, which often meant that I had zero agency in my own life. I was not asked about my preferences. I was not given a choice about how I would spend my time. I was told how to live. I was told how to dress until, until I was about six or seven years old when I said, I ain't wearing dresses no more, Mom. <laughs> and thankfully, she said, okay, that's fine. <laughs> Haven't tried to, tried to not wear one since. I was told how to eat, what to eat. I was told when we were selling a house and packing and moving. I was taken from one place to another without ever having a choice. And it made me believe I was helpless. I always gravitated toward other people who would make decisions for me. I saw myself as shy and unworthy of an opinion. And even if I had one, it didn't matter anyway. No one was asking for it. It wasn't until I got into talk radio I had a talk show on an AM radio station in Georgia in my mid-20s, and I realized in that moment I had a voice, and I could use it. And you'd think that was a good thing in developmental terms. I guess it was. <laughs> but once I found that voice, I used it. And maybe not in so many good ways. I often used it to abuse myself and others, to be strident about my beliefs, giving no grace or quarter for dissent. I became an angry activist with a biting wit and a cutting tongue. I saw myself as oppressed and I was determined to break the shackles of oppression and give as good as I got from those I perceived to be my oppressors. I guess that's better than living into the idea that my parents and school had implanted in me that I was stupid or invisible or helpless. But my ego had gone from being suspicious to vicious. And I was happily going down the path with it. But if you consider the trajectory of your own lives, you may see some similarities. You're given an identity by your parents, for good or ill. You're given an identity by your teachers, your mentors, your partners, your friends, even by your enemies. You take them in and you build that identity. You build your ego around it. You believe these identities to be true, even if they're sometimes contradictory. You act this way around some people and this way around another group of people. It's like you can't decide who you are. I'm stupid in math. I really am. You don't want me to add two numbers. You really don't. That's going to be wrong. But I'm brilliant in English. 
I'm a lousy handyman, but I'm a good writer. I'm a good speaker. And in one moment, I can feel dumb as dirt and the other superior to everyone I see. That's the viciousness of the ego because it keeps you in competition, constantly comparing yourself and most always either coming up short in some areas or exceedingly well in others. Just as Hitler did, we live with so much fear. We're afraid that somehow somebody's going to find out we're a fraud. We don't know what we're doing. But here's the good news this morning, Jubilance. You aren't anything that anyone, including yourself, has projected onto you as an identity. The thing we walk around with as the identity is what Catholic theologian Richard Rohr calls your false self. Now, it's not inherently bad in and of itself, but it's just not who we truly are. It's simply what he calls our launching pad or what A Course in Miracles might call our curriculum. That launching pad, Rohr writes, consists of our body image, our job, our education, our clothes, our money, our car, our sexual identity, our success, and so on. These are the trappings of the ego that we all use to get us through an ordinary day. They're a nice enough platform to stand on, he says, but they're largely a projection of our self-image and our attachment to it. None of them will last. Everyone in this room has changed identities over the years. I've changed mine. I've healed that anger. I've become a more loving and generous person, I like to think. That's my projection of me. Hey, who knows? (laughs) But that's part of the false self too, especially if I begin to take some egoic pride in it and begin to compare myself with others and use my perceived spiritual progress to pump up my ego. Now I'm special because I'm all spiritual and stuff, right? In this moment, I've just seen myself in what a course calls a different light. It's all the same illusion. It's just another version of the false self. No one, of course, says, can survive independently as long as they are willing to see themselves through the eyes of others. This will always put them in a position where they must see themselves in different lights. You have no justification whatever for perpetuating any image of yourself at all. You are not an image. But how can that be, you may wonder? I mean, Genesis in the Bible says we're made in God's image, right? So we've got to have an image. Have you ever looked at that Hebrew word before? Image. It doesn't describe the image we think we see in these bodies. The word means phantom. Image is an illusion. It's a phantom. The image we think we have, that we call the image of God, isn't real. It's not who we truly are. Because that image can change. It can be seen in different lights at different times of our lives. What we truly are is the likeness of God that is unchangeable. We are formed in the image of love. The only thing that's true. Whatever is true of you is wholly benign, of course, says. It is essential that you know this about yourself. But you cannot know it while you choose to interpret yourself as vulnerable enough to be hurt. It is your duty to establish beyond doubt that you are totally unwilling to side with anyone's misperceptions of you, including your own. And jubilance, we all misperceive ourselves. We all think that we are something that we are not. Whatever we have made as our identity, that seemingly solid thing that we believe we are because it has been shaped by our past 
and we perceive that it cannot be changed, it's not who we are. We're like children trying on costumes. We fully believe that we are the characters we're playing. That's why when we change and become some other character, it's painful. Because we believe we're shedding an identity that is real. It took me a long time to get out of the costume of an angry person. It took years. I believed my anger kept me safe and that it would help me end the oppression that I felt, the oppression that I saw in the world. It was difficult to let go of because I thought letting go of that anger meant that I would just become squishy and ineffective and, you know, people would just run over me. Fine, oppressor, just oppress me. Fine, help, help, I'm being oppressed. (laughs) For all you Monty Python fans out there. But here's the cool thing. As soon as I really did give up the anger, I got so much more than I perceived that I had lost. When I moved from fear to love, the things that were valuable to me as an angry person, they lost all their luster. I didn't want that anymore. I don't want to go scream at people. I felt the liberation Roar talks about when he writes, when we are able to move beyond our false self, At the right time and in the right way, it will feel precisely as if we have lost nothing. In fact, it will feel like freedom and liberation. When we are connected to the whole, we no longer need to protect or defend the mere part. That's our little identity, our ego. We are now connected to something inexhaustible. To move out of the false self, though, it takes awareness. It takes willingness got to be willing to look at our past patterns of identity and become aware of how and where they have made us so fearful. We must then be willing to let them go, to relinquish them, to stop seeing ourselves in different lights and stop creating or protecting some image of ourselves that we then project out into the world. We have what, of course, calls an authority problem because we believe, and a lot of New Age philosophies teach this, but we believe we have created ourselves We believe it's up to us to keep creating and recreating that image, something we tend to call self-improvement or Madonna. Right? She just keeps reinventing herself. (laughs) But here's the thing. There's no self to improve. The higher divine self that you already are is perfect. It's just waiting for you to be it out here. It's pure. It's innocent. It is love. Because we've been created by that pure love. As author Henri Nouwen reminds us, we are not what we do. We are not the friendships and connections that we have created. We are not our popularity. We're not our success. We're not our work. Sorry, Madonna. That's not who you are. We are not what others say about us, whether they speak good of us or whether they're tearing us down. All these things he writes that keep you quite busy, quite occupied, and quite often preoccupied are not telling you the truth about who you are. I am here to remind you in the name of God that you are the beloved children of God. And that God says to you, I have called you from all eternity. You are engraved from all eternity in the palms of my hands. You are mine. You belong to me. And I love you with an everlasting love. Jubilance, that's who you are. It's who we all are. We are not lonely bodies on an island of lonely bodies. We are everything that is. We are the light of the world. 
We are loved with an everlasting love by our creator. We are the vastness of the universe. We are the eternal presence. And you may say, that's wonderful preacher, but I got to go to the grocery store. And how am I going to get the vastness of the universe through those doors? Richard Rohr is helpful. He says, when we're connected to the whole, we are now connected to something inexhaustible. And the operable word in that sentence is, now. We are now connected to something inexhaustible. And this is how we practice the resurrection. We live in the now. All the identities we take on or create for ourselves, they come from the past. We use all of our stories, all the things we think we are to create the identity we have now. It's all based in the past. That doesn't even exist anymore. We're just dragging all those patterns from the past into the present moment. Is it any wonder that the future is a carbon copy of everything we've done in the past? The only place we can do anything about those images and identities that we have created in the past is right now. This is the time when we become aware of the patterns and become willing to change or relinquish them. We created those patterns to keep ourselves feeling safe, to get others to love us and accept us. And when we can recognize... These patterns of identity that we've adopted, whether they came from parents, teachers, or even ourselves, then we can realize that they don't have to dictate how we feel, how we act, or how we identify in this moment. A course says there are only two emotions we can ever fear, feel, and that is fear or love. So every moment becomes about identifying where you are. In this moment, are you in fear or are you in love? Are you offering crucifixion to yourselves or others? Or are you practicing resurrection, which simply means, are you walking around in who you truly are? Not an image from the world, but as the holy beloved child of God, seeing nothing else around you but holy beloved children of God. That's what it means to practice the resurrection jubilance, to be constantly asking yourself, how can I be the love? How can I be the peace, the joy, the compassion, the healing in this situation? And it's not up to you to do it. You ask Holy Spirit. There's a, there's a, there's a lesson in the course that says, tell me, tell me what to do. Where am I to go? Who am I to, to, to talk to? What am I to say? You be my guide. It's turning it all over to the Holy Spirit and saying in this moment, what would you have me do what would you have me say what would you have me be and sometimes what happens is holy spirit says not one thing i don't have anything for you to do so you stay silent or you speak what you feel coming from you revelation usually comes out of the blue you know when you think oh how do i know it's real guidance well usually it's like i didn't think to say that it just came through me Because you're being open. Because you know you are a holy beloved child of God and so is everyone else. Are you going to do it right every time? No. No. I can assure you that you will not. (laughs) Or you you will disappear because you will be that fully enlightened being. (laughs) But the more you practice resurrection by being the love and light of the world, the shorter your detours, your egoic detours are going to be. I'll give you an example, all right? This is how it works. In a very, every, the course says to turn over every moment to the Holy Spirit. The minutest of decisions. 
no matter what. So here is an example of turning over just a small thing that could have become a big thing if I had not said, hey, spirit, tell me what to do. As I was writing this sermon, I was coming near to the end, and Beth was in the other room talking on the phone. And I found myself following her into the conversation, and I couldn't focus. I couldn't come back and write the end of the sermon. So I felt myself becoming irritated. You know, I'd written all the sermon up until now. I knew that being irritated, though, and acting from that place was not going to be a loving response. I could have given in to the egoic image of myself as an irritated person, along with the egoic image I had of Beth of being rude and inconsiderate, right? But then I became present. I became present in this moment. And I realized that's not the truth about either of us. So I asked again, Spirit, what is the loving thought? What is the loving act here? So I decided to put in my my earbuds, because I was listening to Tara Brock's podcast, and I had to listen to a little bit more of it, but that didn't work. I was still, I couldn't pay attention. I couldn't do what I needed to do. So I asked again, What is the loving thing to do in this moment? And out of the blue, this is what I heard. I heard, go take a shower. Now, this made me happy because I'd been in my pajamas all morning writing, and I love showers. (laughs) Also, like many people, I do my best thinking in the shower. In fact, the rest of this sermon came to me while I was naked. Sorry, you don't don't need that image, but there it is. But by refusing to believe any image of myself or Beth that was not loving, I accomplished a lot of things. I avoided an argument and hurt feelings by asking Beth to be quiet or to move to another room. I I avoided feeling irritated and thinking less of myself or of her. And I successfully put into practice what I'm trying to teach you right now. You are not any image of this world or yourself, whatever image the world or you puts upon yourself, that's not who you are. You are the beloved children of God. Imagine, imagine the world today if Adolf Hitler had been able to believe that not, to believe that not just about himself, but about everyone he saw in the world If Hitler could have looked in the mirror and said, I am a beloved child of God, no matter what happens. And everyone else is too. Imagine the world. You want to prevent future Hitlers from giving in to their fear and following their vicious ego? This is what you do. You go to the grocery store as the vastness of love and all that is. You walk through the doors, living fully in the present moment. You shed all the identities and image your suspicious and vicious ego holds of yourself and everyone else and you intentionally see yourself and others as beloved children of God. The vastness of the entire universe buying milk and eggs and bread. When you can do that, You will not see bodily identities around you clogging up the aisles, getting ahead of you in line, delaying your progress. Instead, you will find yourself surrounded by light, by love, 
And if you can walk around knowing that they are love and you are love, then all you see, all you speak, all you think, all you feel, all you do will be from love. Because you will be in the now. And that's all that exists in the now. And who knows? Since all minds are joined on that spiritual eternal plane, maybe, just maybe, if we walk around practicing resurrection of who we really are, maybe all that love that we're pouring into the world in every moment will wash over even the most Hitler-like among us until they too will have their fearful identities just fall away and love will overtake them as well. And when that happens, Jubilee, oh, that's when the whole world gets to say, oh yeah. Thank you for joining us for Weekly Wisdom from Jubilee Circle. If you enjoyed the program, we hope that you'll support us by leaving a good review of this podcast wherever you download your shows. We also hope you'll support us in other ways, either by becoming a subscriber to our YouTube channel and our weekly newsletter, or by supporting us financially. You can find out how to do all of that by visiting our website at jubileecircle.com. Many thanks to Audio Coffee from Pixabay for supplying our podcast music. Join us again next week, and until then, take the words of Meister Eckhart with you. If the only prayer you ever say is thank you, that will be enough. We thank you for your time and wish you the kind of week that will leave you saying, Oh, yeah.